We're continuing today our series through the book of the Judges. And today we're going to observe chapters 6 and 7. Your bulletin says 6, 7, and 8, but I bit more than I could chew. So I will spare you of the extra 30 minutes of my sermon. I'll put that next week. Um, it, it would be beneficial for you to open up the Bible and keep it open as we're not starting the message with a reading from the text because the text is long, but throughout the message we will read through much of the text. How strong is your faith? Would you be able to say that your faith is as strong as it can be? On a scale from zero to a hundred, would you be able to say that your faith is 100% strong? One of the challenges with this kind of language is that the Bible never speaks of faith in percentages. When it comes to faith, the Bible speaks of either disbelief or growing confidence. Faith is depicted as a seed that grows. Faith is depicted as a race we run. There is a direction, a progression, a forward motion in the way the Bible speaks of faith. Listen to how Paul speaks of the faith of the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, that it is right because your faith is growing abundantly. Therefore, it is not helpful or biblical to think of faith in terms of percentages, but instead we should evaluate our faith in terms of growth. I am not saying that we shouldn't aim and strive for strong faith, to be completely dependent on our Lord, that is definitely the goal. What I'm saying is that God's favor does not rest on us because our faith is perfect, but because our faith is present. So perhaps this morning you had to push yourself out of the door to come to church because your faith is weak. But you came anyway. Perhaps you're struggling to find satisfaction in your marriage because your faith is weak. But you're persevering anyway. Perhaps you're trying to overcome indwelling sin and the struggle sometimes overwhelms you because your faith is weak. But you keep fighting anyway. Perhaps you struggle with doubts and even the assurance of your salvation because your faith is weak but you keep believing anyway friend what i want you to know today is that weak faith is sufficient faith it is enough for you to have a broken faltering struggling faith it is enough for you to believe even when your faith is not too strong today we're going to meet a man of weak faith. But in his weakness, he saved God's people. Today you're going to meet a man whose faith grew as he leaned on the Lord and not on his own understanding. His name is Gideon. 
Today we're going to consider the first half of Gideon's life. My next message will consider the second half of his life, or his story. But before we dive in, let's remember how we got here. So the book of Judges is the seventh book of the Bible. It follows the conquest of the promised land, Canaan, and the book of Joshua. So now that the land is conquered, the question is, will Israel be able to keep the promised land? This would depend on their ability not to be influenced by the false gods of Canaan. In other words, keeping the promised land would be dependent on Israel not becoming canonized with their religion. But from the onset of the book, we realize that Israel's inclination was not to pursue the one true God, but to pursue the false gods of Canaan. Judges 2, 11 through 13. And the people of Israel did what was evil, what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after the other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs. So what we see throughout the book of Judges is this vicious cycle brought about by Israel's idolatry. This cycle is called the cycle of judges. It's a cycle of sin, servitude, supplication, and salvation. Israel would sin against God, and God would hand them over to serve other nations. Israel would present their supplication. They would cry out to the Lord, asking for His deliverance, and God would save Israel through a judge. And then at the end of one cycle, another cycle would begin. So far we've seen three of these full cycles. We met Othoniel, or Othniel, a model judge. And then we met Ehud, the left-handed assassin who delivered God's people through the power of deception. Last week we met Deborah, the judge, and Barak, the weak and yet strong warrior they all saved israel by faith not by might but by faith today we're going to see gideon saving israel and as we turn to chapters six and seven we're going to see two things primarily in the story of gideon we're going to see the power of weak faith and then we're going to see the power of a strong God. So let's turn to our narrative as we consider the power of weak faith. You may not think of weak faith as powerful, but weak faith is powerful because weak faith rests on a strong God. Point one depends on point two. So we have again in the beginning the weakness of Israel. Look at verse one. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. By the way, every major judge begins with this line. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. 
This is sin and servitude, the, two, the first two steps of the cycle. But beginning in verse 2, we got more information on how they served the Midianites. Look at verse 2. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their, life, they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste to the land as they came in. In other words, the Midianites and the Amalekites were basically eating up all of the resources Israel had. They would ransack and they would plunder their food, their grains, their livestock. And did you notice in verse 2 how Israel was fighting this off? They would hide. They would hide in caves. They would hide in strongholds, in dens. The people of the Most High God hiding. It's interesting that in verse 5, the Midianites are compared here with locusts. A locust is very, very similar to a grasshopper. But the primary difference between locusts and grasshoppers is that locusts are able to swarm crops. They were a nightmare for farmers. They would devour everything that was on their paths. And this is what the Midianites were doing to the crops of the people of Israel. Whatever Israel grew, whatever Israel raised... The Midianites ate. Deuteronomy 28 is a key chapter in the Bible where we learn that God in His covenant with Israel made promises to bless them if they obeyed, but curses, promised curses if Israel broke the covenant. And one of these curses we find in verse 38, we read, You shall carry much seed in your fields and shall gather in Little, for the locust shall consume it. In other words, the promised curse for disobedience is starting to come to fruition. The reality, friends, is that hard circumstances can often challenge our faith. I was reading portions of C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief, observed yesterday he wrote the book during a season of great difficulty in his life his wife of three years passed away with cancer in the book he explains how before this suffering he thought of his faith as a temple built with stones 
But then he realized that after suffering, his faith was more like a house of cards. So he says, his, God's only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. If you've ever experienced grief in your life, you know what this means. One day you think you are as strong as you can be. The next day you realize that you have no strength within yourself to even persevere. And this is what Israel was experiencing Israel experienced the deliverance of strong judges just to fall into the hands of their enemies over and over again. Look at verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. But Israel responded well here in verse 6. In their weakness, they run to the Lord. Continuing verse 6, we read, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And friends, this is the response of those who recognize their weak faith. In suffering, in struggle, in pain, we cry. It's interesting that we see Israel not calling on the Lord, not speaking to the Lord, not addressing the Lord, but crying. Crying is raw. Crying is visceral. But crying is accessible to all. Anyone and everyone can cry. When you're suffering, you don't need help to make yourself cry. No, it happens naturally. And those whose faith is like a house of cards may not know how to speak, address, or call on the Lord, but we can always cry. We can always cry for help. We can always groan in the presence of the Lord. And here's what is great. The Lord understands it. The Lord hears it. The Lord always hears the cry of His people. He responds in verse 7. He sends a prophet to remind Israel of His faithfulness. Did I not bring you out of the land of Egypt? Was I not the God who delivered you? God reminds Israel of His faithfulness in history, and this is how faith is strong, is strengthened, right? We look back. And we remember the faithfulness of the Lord. He reminds Israel of the fact that God Himself, the Lord Himself, redeemed them. But He also reminds Israel that they fell prey to the gods of the land they inhabited. In verse 11, we meet Gideon. So really, the opening verses of this chapter are the broad picture of the condition of Israel. But when we meet Gideon, we meet the same condition, but in an individual form. We meet Gideon, the great warrior, 
not in the way we would expect to meet a great warrior. Instead, he is not different from Israel. He is beating wheat, but not up in the hill where the winds help move out the chaff, but hidden down in a wine press. Why? Because he's afraid. He's afraid that the Midianites are going to come and steal his lunch. The angel of the Lord appears to him and greets him actually with irony. Here's this great warrior hiding his lunch. So in verse 12, the angel of the Lord says to Gideon, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. But there isn't anything of valor in Gideon. In verse 13, he says to the angel, if the Lord is with us. Did you notice that the angel already said the Lord is with you? One verse later, he's injecting the if in what the angel has already told him that is true. The angel of the Lord commands him to save Israel, but he, died. he doubts. Doubts linger in Gideon's heart. He views his tribe as too weak. And he views himself as the weakest of his tribe. Gideon prepares a meal for the angel of the Lord. And there is much that we could talk about the angel of the Lord here. The identity of the angel of the Lord. We're not going to do that today. But clearly, being in the presence of the angel of the Lord meant that he was in the presence of the Lord. The angel of the Lord reveals himself to Gideon. He likely thought all along that that was a man, a messenger. And Gideon prepares him a meal, but the angel of the Lord receives that meal as a sacrifice. And so from this point on, Gideon is commissioned to save Israel. In verses 25 and 26, we see an interesting development there. We actually get a little bit of an insight, a, a personal story on how enslaved to idolatry Israel really was. These verses teach us to deal with idolatry. And if we're going to deal with idolatry properly, we need to deal with idolatry at a root level. The Lord commands Gideon to destroy the altar, Subaal, that was at his father's house. Why did Gideon's father have an altar, Subaal, in his home? Well, clearly... Because idolatry was so deeply rooted in Jewish culture that even the Israelites built shrines and altars to foreign gods. And I think there is an important message here for us today. If we're going to go after the idols of the culture around us, we need to first destroy the idols that live among us. The idols of the households of Israel needed to be destroyed first. 
before Israel went and struck, before Gideon went and struck the enemy. We're not immune to idolatry, friends. John Calvin would say that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. What does this mean? It means that we're always seeking to find meaning and purpose in things other than God. We may not build shrines or images made out of wood, but at a heart level. We know we often devote ourselves to things other than God. What is an idol? An idol is anything that we love more than God. Good or bad, sinful or righteous, anything that competes for our allegiance with God is an idol. Gideon obeys the Lord. Though he does it hidden at night, he goes and destroys the altar to Baal, his father's house, and there he builds an altar to the one true God. The men of Israel wanted to kill Gideon for this, but notice that Gideon's obedience awoke obedience in his formerly idolatrous father's heart. Look at verse 31. But Joash, this is the father of Gideon, said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is God, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. It's interesting. Faithfulness is contagious. Gideon's father was transformed by the faithfulness of his son. When we obey the Lord, we're potentially inspiring others to do the same. This is why church is so important. This is why church is not just about self. This is why church is about community. Because as we see faithfulness in others, we say faithfulness is possible. As we see our brothers and sisters shattering and breaking the idols in their own hearts, we say, we, by the power of God, can do the same. So friends, why? Why do we live in community? Why do we gather? Because we need one another. We need each other. You cannot have church at home by yourself. You cannot live faithfully apart from the fellowship of believers. Can church be hard sometimes? Absolutely. It's always easier to live life by yourself or by ourselves, or so we think. Until we realize that God has so designed His people to build the faith in the hearts of those who love Him and are seeking to live according to His purpose. Ironically, here in the story, we see the opposite of what is supposed to take place. Fathers are supposed to teach their children to be faithful. But we see here a son stirring faithfulness in the hearts of his father. Children, I think this is a good reminder for you. Your parents, we are flawed. We are sinful. 
We make mistakes. We do things that are wrong. And sometimes we're not going to lead you well. But even when we are not faithful, even when we do that which God tells us not to do, you can do what God tells you to do. You can obey God if you believe Him and if you approach Him by faith. Even when we sin, children, when your parents sin like Gideon's father sinned, you can still choose to obey God and do what is right. And, here, and here's what I want you to understand. Sometimes we're going to look to you and we're going to say, I didn't do what was right, but my child did what was right. And we're going to be inspired by you. And we're going to see, Lord, help me be more like my child. So when you see unfaithfulness in your parents, just bear with us, okay? Be patient with us. And you seek to be faithful to God. One of the ways that we seek to instruct our children is by telling them how we fail like they fail. So sometimes when we are disciplining, primarily Boaz right now because we're talking, right? Discipline has so much communication at this point. We tell him, son, what you've done is not any different than what we have done. And we want you to learn to obey God just as we need to learn to obey God. So parents, we, we are standing as pointers towards God, both in our faithfulness and in our unfaithfulness, in our strength and our weaknesses. This is why parenting is so wonderful. You don't have to be strong to be a parent. You can recognize that you need God and that your children ultimately don't need you. They need God themselves. At the end of chapter 6, we see the famous fleece interaction between Gideon and God. The Midianites are encamped around Israel ready for war. Gideon already knows that the Lord is with him, but the knowledge that he has is not enough. So let's read here starting in verse 36, this interaction. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry all and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece, fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground that was due. What an incredible interaction. Gideon had every reason to know that God was with him, and yet he asked God for a sign. And what is incredible is that God gives him a sign. 
And as though that was not enough, he asks for the reverse sign. And God does it again. Now, I know you're asking in your mind, is this a pattern that I should follow as I make decisions in life? And the answer is no. This is not a pattern we should follow. Why? Because the sign of the fleece is not a commendation on Gideon's faith. Rather, it is an incredible display of God's patience towards who are weak in faith. In other words, what we're reading here is a description of an interaction between Gideon and God and not a prescription for how we should interact with God. We should trust God. We should believe Him. When He promises, He will follow through. But here is what this story tells us. God is so patient. God is so kind. God is willing to walk with us in our weakness. So friends, we find great hope in knowing that we ought to believe God with 100% certainty. But even when we don't, God is still patient with us. Well, let's turn now to chapter 7 and let's consider the power of a strong God. There is an incredible transformation that takes place between chapters 6 and 7. But what is the cause of this transformation? Kids, maybe you know about the story of Spider-Man. I know my son does way more than I do. Before he was Spider-Man, he was just an average boy called Peter Parker. Right, But what happened that turned Peter Parker into Spider-Man? He got bit by a spider. And that simple event turned weak Peter Parker into mighty Spider-Man. That's kind of like Gideon. Something happened to Gideon. That took him from being a very afraid, very weak man and turned him into a great warrior. Do you know what happened to him? No, he did not get bit by a spider or anything like that. No, he began believing in God. And this is what changes us. When we believe in God, we're able to do things we were not able to do before. When we believe in God, we're able to do things like overcoming fear. We're able to become brave before great enemies. We're able to obey God. Well, let's see this transformation starting in chapter 7, verse 1. Then, Jerubbaal. This is another name for Gideon that was given to him because he contended with Baal. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped before, b- beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, 
The people with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites, for me to give the Midianites into your hands. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand have saved me. Now therefore proclaim it to the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So God is clearly showing through this story that He does not depend on the strength of man to accomplish His purposes. He does not want Israel to boast on the victory because then Israel would not grow in faith if they did. God does not need great men of valor to accomplish His work. On the contrary, the Bible praises the underdog, the underestimates, the undervalued. Because when God accomplishes great things to, through people like Gideon, people like Moses, David, David, Mordecai, Peter, people like you, people like me, it is clear that it is God who is at work and not our might. But notice here that God dismisses the men who were afraid, but that is not enough. There is still 10,000 men left, and we have seen Israel do amazing things with 10,000 men. 10,000 was exactly the number of men that Barak had and 10,000 was the number of men that destroyed all the men of Sisera. God was not satisfied with 10,000 men. He wanted less. So look at what happens in verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I'll test them for, I'll test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set, be set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands on their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who, I la who lapped, I will save, you, I'll save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all others go, every man to his home. So the people took provision in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. What an interesting story. What a puzzling development. Is there a reason behind God's process of elimination here? Either kneeling down to drink water or lapping like a dog? No. This process is completely random. It's like God is saying, any, any 300 men will do. God weakens His own army from 10,000 to 300. 
This is not good war strategy. Or is it? You may be thinking of the movie 300, the 300 right now, the amazing Spartan army led by King Leonidas. Lots of similarities here. But the stories actually make the opposite point. While Leonidas' army was remarkable because his men were selected, trained, and mighty, Gideon's men were selected based on the way they drank water. And it wasn't even the people that drank water normal that were kept. It was the people who drank water like a dog. What is the point that God is making here? Here's the point. Victory comes not based on the strength of the army. What really matters is that God fights for His people. He could have been one man if God was with him. If Gideon had gone alone, Gideon would have won because God was with him. And sometimes when God fights for us, He first strips us of those things we're most confident on so we can rest on His power alone and not in our personal abilities. Every time that David fights with Saul's armor, David loses. But when David approaches his enemy with the Spirit of God, he wins. It is not just Gideon or Israel. It is us too. We often think too highly of ourselves. We don't have a problem with low self-esteem. We think we can just overcome sin with discipline. We think we can fix our marriages with some dates or a vacation or even some counseling. We think we can change our lives with diet and exercise. We think we just need a little more education. We just need a little more money, a little more recognition, a little more of this, a little more of that. And if we have those things, then we can accomplish all things. If we get the things that we are missing, victory will be ours. But that is not true. It is when we lose confidence in self and gain confidence in Christ that victory is ours. Confidence in Christ and confidence in self are categorically incompatible paul says in philippians 3 but whatever gain i had i counted as lost for the sake of christ indeed i counted everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord for his sake i have suffered the lord the loss of all things and count them as rubbish now don't miss these words here in order that what are these words saying? These words are saying that when we lose everything, that's when we, can made, when we can gain Christ. I counted everything as lost so that in order that I may gain Christ. Friends, when we add 
anything to the confidence that we should have in Christ alone, we lose Christ. But when we approach life with nothing, nothing that is born of us, but the victory that Christ promises, we are more than conquerors. Why? Because none of the works we do will ever amount to anything good in the eyes of God. God wins battles with an army that depends on Him. And He wins souls when believers approach Him letting go of their confidence and trusting in Christ. Christ won His victory through weakness. He humbled Himself, took on the form of a man, and yet as a man, He perfectly obeyed the Father in a way that you and I could never obey. But He died. He died on the, on the cross, taking on the curse that you and I deserve. All of those curses lined out in Deuteronomy 28. Those were on Christ's shoulders as He died. The curse because of faithlessness. The curse, yes, of Israel as Israel pursued idolatry. But the curse that you and I receive because of our love for the idols of our hearts. Christ died paying the penalty for those. And He's calling us, idolaters, who love self way too much, who think of ourselves way too highly, to come to Him abandoning all works and approaching Him by faith alone. And He says, even if your faith is weak, even if you approach Me trembling, with weak knees and weak hands. But if you come to me, I will strengthen you. Friends, this is the invitation that Christ makes for you today. So approach Him, not based on the works that you bring, but based on the works that He has accomplished and His finished sacrifice on the cross. As we continue in verse 9, we see the Lord encouraging Strengthening Gideon. The Lord knows our frame. The Lord knows we need encouragement to accomplish the work that He has called us to accomplish. So the Lord tells Gideon to go into the camp of the enemy. There, he overhears a conversation about a dream that encourages him. The men in the encampment are afraid of Gideon because his fame precedes him. So look at how Gideon responds to this in verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise. Here's the transformation. Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. Yes, boldness, strong faith, Gideon is given a glimpse of his victory. Therefore, his faith in the Lord is strengthened. He, God assures Gideon that he will give his enemies into his hands. God assures Gideon that victory will be his. And now Gideon is 
a transformed man. No longer is he doubting. No longer is he the doubting man we met in chapter 6. He is sure and assured in the Lord. And friends, we too have been given a glimpse of our victory. We have been given a glimpse of our victory in Christ. We know that through Christ and through his death, he conquered sin and death. And though Christ died, he did not stay dead. He rose victorious. He rose from the death and then rendered his enemies powerless. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over him, over them in Christ. We know the end of the story. Christ wins and we win with him. And what is required of us? Faith. Faith, though weak, though frail, though small, because even weak faith is sufficient faith. What about us? We know what Gideon was called to accomplish. What are we called to accomplish? How can we accomplish the things of the Lord? We need the gospel. Our faith needs to finish, it needs to rest in the finished work of Christ. The message that we are weak and apart from God, we can do nothing. We need to preach this message to ourselves day in and day out. Because Christ is strong, we, the weak, can do all things. So it is through the gospel that we accomplish strong families when we realize we can't do it ourselves, but Christ can do it through us. We can accomplish a strong church. We can't do it ourselves. We would mess this up. But Christ can accomplish this through us. Friends, you may be thinking, I need to find reconciliation with other people, but I can't see that ever happening. No, you can't, but Christ can accomplish that in you. Friends, you're looking at the world around us and you're saying, so many people need to hear the gospel and believe. We need to evangelize. We need to do missions. This city right now, city right now needs the gospel. And we, in our strength, can't, can't reach this city for Christ. But Christ can do it through us. You may be looking at your life and you say, I'm all over the place. I'm falling apart. I can't even, I can't even put a strong fight against sin. I can't win this victory. I can't win this battle. No, you can't, but you need the gospel. You're weak, but Christ is strong. So Christ can do that in you. As we finish chapter 7, we see the victory of the Lord. We see the victory that Christ, the God, accomplishes through Gideon. He went on to deliver the people not a sword in hand, just trumpets, jars, and torches. God confused the enemy and delivered his people that day. The Midianites took care of the Midianites themselves. And weak, doubtful, feeble Gideon was victorious in the power that the Lord supplies. 
Friends, the Lord is able to accomplish mighty things because of His strength and not ours. All that He demands is that we approach Him with faith, with our weak faith, because weak faith is sufficient faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we need You in every aspect of our lives. Father, we need You to strip ourselves of any confidence that we have in our strength, in our might. We need You, Lord, to weaken the army that we think is so strong within us. We need You to destroy the idolatry of self that we so gladly pursue. Father, we need You to give us faith. Faith in the great Deliverer who is Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that You grant us the gift of faith and that You grant this gift to us for all our entire lives so that we may walk this life by faith. And yet, Lord, one day we long to see you and be as you are. We long for our faith to turn into sight. We pray thankfulness in the name of Christ. Amen.